All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. Jeff Agostino is joining us this evening. Um, and Jeff, you're one of those guys that everybody like always just assumes I know because I think we're both kind of like in the lower mainland hunting scene, but this is the first time we've ever actually had a conversation. So I'm super stoked to kind of have a chance to chat and get to know you. And, and thanks a lot for taking the time, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for uh, having me come on. I think a lot of people make that kind of assumption when two people are from the same area or kind of, they just think everyone knows each other. And, you know, everyone's busy. We all got things going on. doesn't always work out that way, right? But uh, I'm excited to have this conversation and chat a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you'd made the, the the comment just before that in another kind of topic we were discussing that, you know, COVID for the last two years has kind of kept people from organically meeting face-to-face. And I think that's part of it too, because I, I wasn't really big into like the local um, scene up until the last couple of years. And now that I am a, trying to kind of branch out and get to more, know more local guys, there's, there hasn't been a lot of opportunities either because of COVID and like face-to-face kind of meetups not happening as frequently as they, as they used to. Yeah, hundred percent. It's been, I mean, everything's been weird the last couple of years, but uh, I think a lot of those events, you know, pint nights or banquets, fundraisers was a staple kind of in the hunting community here in BC. And it's not something we've been able to do. And not only have we lost fundraising dollars and stuff for that, but we've also lost that uh, in-person touch and, you know, those conversations that we tend to have over whether it be a couple of drinks or dinner or what it is. Um, yeah, it, it sucks. And hopefully we can get back to normal and start having those kinds of things again. So I think, you know, we kind of have some friends in in common and I think you were, I guess came on Maria, like you, you were a local guy that was still kind of young and you've had a couple of big successes, but you're also, I think the the theme of those successes has been like a lot of really hard work. Like you're not you don't come off as a guy who like went on a guided hunt just to kill a trophy animal or something like that. And the animals that you got have been from what I understand, like really challenging kind of homegrown DIY hunts. So I think what I'm curious about and a really great place to start is like, how did you cut your teeth? You grow up in a hunting family. Did you come by this naturally? Like what's, what's your background? I'm pretty blessed. I mean, my family has always hunted here since they moved originally from Portugal, didn't hunt back there. But when they came to Canada and moved to BC, uh, they got into hunting right away through the, the Portuguese community. Actually, there was quite a few people here that hunted already. So, I mean, I was out in the field with my dad. And by that, I don't mean we were hiking mountains or anything, but he was taking me out into the bush when I was five, six, seven years old. So just kind of getting used to it. Uh, and then when I was 10, I got my hunting license and I took my first year, which I'm blessed to have had that opportunity at that age. And then just kind of grew into it. And when I got into my late teens is when I kind of started to, it started to evolve more for me. And I kind of moved away from, you know, the standard road hunting or the moose hunting that a lot of what my family does. Um, And I started moving into getting into the mountains and starting to chase different types of animals and really just chasing the adventure. Uh, I did my first fly in hunt when I was 20, 19 or 20. And, uh, we flew into a lake and did a caribou hunt. We killed a caribou day six or day seven, packed it out 16 K. And from that moment on, I was hooked. Like, it's just what I had to be doing. I needed to be in the mountains and I needed to be chasing these animals, all the different mountain species, as we like to call them. And getting into these places that some people might question our sanity when they see us where we are. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just love it. And again, I'm super blessed to have had a lot of people that 
were, you know, mentors for lack of a better word in the space and kind of brought me into it and uh, showed me the ropes a little bit. And then I just kind of took it from there and went out on my own. And, you know, I do a little bit of solo. I wouldn't say solo, solo, but, you know, I go out and hunt sheep by myself from time to time. And um, yeah, I cut my teeth on it, had some mentors and then just turned into it for, or, you know, picked it up on my own and started doing it more and more and more. And here we are now where I spend probably a hundred days, a year, not a hundred, but 80 to a hundred days a year, I guess, in the field. So, so what, what grabbed you kind of at first, because I'm going to think, how old are you now? 26. Okay. So even six, seven years ago, there wasn't the the kind of social media fame around backcountry hunting that there is now. So it wouldn't have been as easy to be inspired in that way. So what do you think about it? Did, did you do like any like wilderness trips backpacking before that? Or was there, what do you, what first caught your attention about the kind of more backcountry style hunting? Uh, I, I've never done any sort of backpacking wilderness trips prior to it. Uh, I had a friend who had done some stone sheep hunting when he was in his twenties and he's about 15, 20 years older than me. And, uh, he's got, honestly, it's, it was his trophy room. Like, and he told me all the stories of the different animals he had taken. And, uh, he's the one who took me on that first fly in and seeing pictures, hearing stories. I was like, I just need to do this for myself and experience it and see what it's going to be like, uh, I mean, social media came after that for sure. And that's actually, I hadn't even thought about that before, but uh, yeah, it was just the adventure being out there, being remote and just for lack, I mean, being out on your own, right. Uh, being able to survive in those conditions, putting your body, putting your skills to the test, all the aspects of it. I mean, I've always been someone who uh, loves challenge as much as possible. And I feel like mountain hunting and doing that kind of stuff puts a lot of, or is pretty challenging. And, you know, especially when we're chasing a lot of these species, it's not easy. What well, we're not driving out there and 15 minutes into it, taking an animal and driving back home. It's just, it's not how it works, right? There's lots of days of pain and suffering and sitting in tents, weathering stuff out. Like the whole, all of that is just what I love and can't get enough of sucker for pain, I guess. See, this is the thing I've been trying to, I've been trying to share a little bit more on, on this lately. Like I think and people, it's almost cliche now to say about all variety of disciplines, but if you're not in love with the process, I, I, I'm so bold as to say you need to go find another process because if you're doing all of this for like that last 10 minutes and the gripping grin and the ability to post something like you're not, you're, you're just going to quit eventually because there's so much more of that shit that you just talked about than there is of the glory at the end that you got, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some joy in that in the process, or I just don't think you're going to, because people even will hit me up and they're like, well, how do you make it through? You know, I tend to like to hunt by myself. Like, how do you make it through a solo hunt? I'm like, what do you mean? How do I make, like, I don't want to leave, man. Like literally it'll get to like day 13. And I'm like, I I need a shower and I'm out of food. So I'm going to get on this plane right now, but like, I don't want to this. I would rather just stay here and keep, and keep doing this. I had this epiphany the other day and I realized the only stress for me in hunting is time. Yeah. If you just took the clock out of the equation and I just could just hunt until I was either successful or like, you know, realized that it just wasn't going to happen in this area. I don't think there'd be any stress for me at all. The thing that stresses me out the most is that I'm pretty success oriented and I'm trying to work on that so that I can be happier in the process as well. But I've noticed that 
as soon as it starts, I feel like there's this clock ticking and then, and I put pressure on myself to kind of be successful. And that's the thing that weighs on me. Like I, like the, the other stuff, the weather, the hiking, the freeze dried food, the sleeping in a tent, like all that stuff is fine. It's that the pressure of the clock is the thing that I find gets to me. Yeah, I definitely can relate to, to that for sure. I mean, you get to day three, day four, day five, like say you're doing a 10 day hunt and you hit day five. You start questioning everything that's happened on the first five days of the hunt. The yeah. fact you only have five days left. Well, I need this amount of time to hike back out, right? So I lose a day right there. And now I only have four days left to hunt, right? Um, and it becomes a little bit of a time crunch. And, you know, you want to maximize your time and your efficiency when you're out there. Um, but it definitely does put a little bit of stress on it. And, it, you know, being successful is what we're all aiming for. And so it does weigh, I think, on everyone's mind a little bit when we're out there. Um, but, yeah, it's is what it is. I mean, we got to enjoy it and we come back and we just want to get back out there again. Right. I think sometimes not being successful is what drives us to get right back out there. A hundred percent. I always come home. I always say failure is my best friend because it puts that little bit of acid in the back of my throat and I'll like hit the archery range just that much more before the next, like there's just, it, it'll drive me to do that next thing. The other thing I've noticed, and I'm by no means an, an expert hunter and I have an extremely long way to go but I've been fortunate enough now to have a couple of successes in some pretty adverse conditions. I do feel like I don't have to prove, not that I ever had to prove anything to anybody else, but I feel like I'm more okay coming home empty handed now than I was before because I don't look at it so much as like, a. I take some personal responsibility in it, but I also have enough faith in my own skill set that like, sometimes it's just not going to happen, man. And I'm okay accepting that. Whereas before earlier in my career, I would just beat the shit out of myself and say like, it was all me and I'm a failure. And I think I've kind of grown out of that a little bit now. And I can just accept the fact that like some hunts just aren't going to be successful. No, hundred percent. And I think if we went into the field every time and we're successful every time we wouldn't enjoy it. I mean, I, I wouldn't enjoy going out and taking an animal and coming back home with something every single time. It, it doesn't do anything for me, right? It's not what hunting is about is just being successful, right? There's so much more to it. Uh, learning, adapting, the adventure, the challenge, like I said, that outweighs the success a lot of the time. So yeah, I'm one of those things. I also think it's a good ego check. Like I tend to be a pretty successful guy at most things just because I'm hardworking, I'm disciplined, I'm not an idiot. And hunting is one of those things I've always said, no matter how perfect you are, you still need that five to 10% luck. Yeah. Like it's one of those things that sometimes just no matter what you do, you're going to fail. And I think that's a positive thing for our egos to go through. Like it just, you got to check yourself and, and realize that no matter what you do, sometimes shit's just going to be out of your hands. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Right. And I think it's kind of why we, I mean, you and I have both done winter goat hunts now too, right? Yeah. Uh, it's one of those hunts that real, really check your ego and really put you in place this year. We had a rough one and we were in the tents. We were getting covered in, well, you were out, I think at the same time as us possibly, yeah. um, just tons of moisture. It was just an ass kicker. Like we just took a beating on it. Right. And you come back home and you're like, wow. I mean, we, last year we get it done in a couple of days and you think it's all fine and dandy and this is easy. And then you go and do one of those and it puts you in check real quick. Yeah. That's a fact. So when you first started getting into the backcountry side of things, is there, did you have any expectations that were just totally different to the reality or did, were you going into it with more of an empty slate? No, I, I didn't have any expectations. I never really uh, set any expectations on it. 
Um, I mean, if you would ask me six years ago how hard it was to achieve success in the mountains, I probably would have thought it was a lot easier than it is. That's for sure. Um, but I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad it isn't. But I never re- really went out there with any sort of real expectation. I just wanted to learn um, and enjoy my time out there more than anything. And I mean, where I'm at today with it and kind of the groups that I've and the people I've been able to meet is amazing. But I never would have imagined that it would have took a, taken off like this, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't realize back then there was the organizations and the type of people and the groups and the just everything to mountain hunting that there is. Uh, and it's kind of cool when you really sit back and think about it and, you know, you get to meet some pretty cool and pretty awesome people and have some great experiences. You know, what's funny you think about the success, because I was trying to, I was asking myself, this just kind of same question internally when I asked it to you. And I do think I'd never, I've never actually thought this to myself before, but I do realize now that at the beginning, I thought if I was just willing to just go to those ridiculous places, that success would be more of an inevitability. You know what I mean? Like I thought, well, if I'm willing to do all that crazy shit, surely I'm going to kill an animal. And now it's some of the, that goat hunt is a prime example. Like that was probably the most physically challenging thing of my life. Mm -hmm. And I got nowhere close. I mean, kind of maybe on the second last day, I got kind of close, but yeah, that was a bit, that's a big lesson you learn no matter how hard, like the difficulty of the hunt does not correlate to your likelihood of success whatsoever. Like sometimes it's the easiest shit on like the first day you get this epic chance at an animal. And other times you grind yourself to the bone for 10 days and you don't even get one decent look. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's just is what it is. And I think more than sometimes more than just putting in the work, you got to put in the work, but it's also just days in the field too. Right. The more time you spend out there, the higher your odds of success are going to be. And you can look at that a whole bunch of different ways, but uh, with time in the field also comes experience, knowledge, and just more comfort with being out there and knowing what to look for, what you need to be doing when you're in the field that, you know, lowers how much luck you need and how much more your success can be attributed to skills and things that you've learned. And yeah. hundred percent, man. So another thing that's interesting, and again, I'm sure some of this came from family and whatnot, but this is something I get asked about quite a lot. And you, you mentioned being grateful for having some mentors in your life. How were you able to kind of develop those relationships? And is there any lessons you've learned that you would pass on or tips you would give to people who who are looking to develop those mentor relationships and find people who are kind of willing to show them the way? First off, be you, be real and be honest. Uh, Guys that generally have that much experience can pick out someone that's being fake for the most part is what I've seen. Also, don't come into it from the approach that you're just going to sit there and be a student and put your hand up when a simple question comes up, be engaged and show whoever you want to be your mentor, whoever you're trying to learn from that you're willing to get out there and put in the work. Right. I have a friend who has a family member who's a great elk hunter in BC and he refused to teach him how to go out and elk hunt properly until he went and took his first bull. Like he just wouldn't. And then he went out and he took his first bull and it was his uncle started teaching him everything that he's learned over the 40 years he's been cheap on because he showed that he's willing to put in the time, put in the work. Right. Yep. So I think a lot of these guys that are experienced and are willing to maybe share some information, want to see some work put in or some time put in by someone. They don't want to just feel like they're putting everything on a cookie platter and handing it over to you. Right. They want to be, they want to be able to see that you're willing to put in the time and the effort. Dude, I, I, I love this. And it was funny. I, I, I learned this firsthand. I actually get some of the best, like contacts from my failed hunts. Cause I like to film my hunts and I post them on hunting BC. And it's funny, people complain about hunting BC sometimes, but I have like 
99% positive interactions. Yeah. Like people are super friendly and people are always very supportive when I put up a film, even when I suck and I fail. But the amount of times like an old timer will reach out after watching me like beat the shit out of myself for a week and like slide me a little tidbit or say, you know, when you're getting ready for next year, here's my number, give me a call. And I think that's what it is. When they see you so committed that you're willing to go fail by yourself, then, but you got to do that shit first because like you got to show that commitment before having an expectation that you're going to get anything in return. But then once you show that level of commitment that, yeah, I'm willing to go out there kind of not knowing what I'm doing and probably get my ass kicked. And then you show them that you're willing to do that. That's when they're like, okay, then you're worth my time. Now I'm willing to kind of like let you into the fold and kind of, you know, pull back the kimono a little bit and, and, and show you some things and let you in on some, some tips, which usually aren't even these great grand secrets. You kind of realize after a while that there really is no secrets. Like it's just a lot of hard work and, and time, but there are some shortcuts that they, you know, being around more experienced people can definitely, you know, shave some time off the learning curve. For sure. I mean, you think about these guys that generally have all that experience and the amount of boots that they've gone through and the experiences that they've had in the mountains that they've hiked, right? I mean, they put in the work, they put in their dollars, they put in their time and they earned it themselves. So, you know, it's not a free ride when you're trying to get help from someone like that. That's for sure. So one thing you have a lot more experience about than I do, because this was something I always kind of thought I did, but was going to do, but I'm a pretty naturally introverted, introverted person. How's the role in like participating in um, like some of the organizations aided in, you know, building a social circle and developing some, some relationships. And is that one of the things that you would recommend? Like if a guy was, was starting out. 100%. Um, we'll, we'll take, just because we're in BC here, we'll take the wild sheep society of BC as a big, big example. Um, for, I would say probably four or five years ago, I had never been to one of their events. I just decided I was going to become a member. So I did. And, you know, I had heard this, not, like not rumor, I don't want to call them rumors, but just this talk from some of the old timers that, you know, oh, you go to the, one of the WSSBC banquets and no one really wants to talk to the new guys. People just think you're there for information. And I'm like, I'm just going to go into this open-minded. And I went with a couple of buddies and we just were us, right? And the amount of relationships I built in three days with just real people, like-minded individuals who are just out there and wanted to get after it was unbelievable. Like I came away from my first weekend at a WSSBC event and was like, wow, like I can't believe how many more people are on the same page as we are and want to do the exact same thing. And having open conversations, you know, having drinks, having dinner together those nights. And you get to meet a lot of cool people that live here in BC that, I mean, I didn't realize even existed. And so, yeah, going back to your original question, be getting involved with local organizations and going to these local events is huge. You're going to meet people. You're going to build relationships. You might meet a new sheep hunting partner or goat hunting partner or elk hunting partner. It's totally likely, right? And uh, I find one of the things that's nice about these organizations is at the end of the day, we're all there for the same reason. Like, for example, WSSBC, we're all there because we care about the mountains, habitat, and sheep hunting or other types of hunting. I mean, a lot of the guys that aren't even sheep hunters, to be completely honest, they're just like being in the mountains, right? Right. Um, so yeah, going to joining an organization and going to the events are one of the best ways for new hunters who are passionate to meet people that might be willing to show them or teach them a thing or two for sure. Plus, I mean, they put on different education courses. They put on uh, different shows, presentations that you can, know, go, you can go and sit in, be a part of and learn firsthand. Yeah. And this is, I, 
you know, I feel like too, I'm at the point now where I do feel like I need to give back a little bit. And even though like, I'm not great, you know, I do find a little anxious, like, you know, meeting new people and stuff. That's not my forte, but I think I need to like stretch out a little bit and do that because, um, I feel too, like I need to participate a little bit. Like I take a lot from the hunting community in, in British Columbia. Like I'm very lucky. I get to go on a lot of really cool hunts. British Columbia itself offers me a lot just by being a resident here. I don't think it's a right, you know, I have a privilege to like hunt the species that I, that I do. And I also think that there's, with that comes a bit of a responsibility and I do what I can through like the mindful hunter and whatnot, but I do, I think just for my own little note, I think, you know, that's probably one of my goals going into 2022 is try and like participate in a more meaningful way with, with some of these organizations, because I do think, and this might be a, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in the, in the hunting community. And I think these types of like RMEF and, you know, Wild Sheep Society and Wild Sheep Foundation and, uh, you know, the Goat Alliance and a variety of other organizations, like they're the ones that are going to keep us on track and they've been around for a really long time. And that's where the old guys are hanging out. And like, so I do think, you know, we need to give them some of our lifeblood and our energy as well. If we want to, if we want hunting to, 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 to maintain, you know, the kind of roots that it's, that it's had as we encounter like different obstacles that we're running into in the future. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, 100%. I mean, we're not, these we're not, I say we're, but these organizations aren't just, you know, conservation organizations, you know, they are voices for us as hunters too. Right. Right. Um, they're a way for us to show as hunters that we are passionate about this wildlife and we are passionate about these species and we're willing to put our money, our time where our mouths are and give back. Right. Um, kind of, I was just thinking about what I was saying before my first ever, uh, banquet, I think it was the Friday night. They do a backpack race and I'm literally standing there. I know two guys that are there. Uh, and both my friends, they're a little bit older and they're like, nah, we're not doing a backpack race. I'm like, okay, what's groups of threes. Like, I need to find someone to do this with because I just want to go for it. And uh, this guy walks up to me and he's like, you look like you're in pretty decent shape. You look like you can run a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, uh, me and my brother are going to be uh, running the backpack race and we need a third person to join us. You in? Sure. Why not? We end up running the backpack race. We win it. You know, we got a bunch of gear, uh, which was awesome. That was Lauren and Mark Trousdale, who now I hunt with. They've been on the last two goat, winter goat hunts I've done. Uh, and I'm going to be sheep hunting with them next year. I'm going to do a stone sheep hunt. They do really nice too. I need to give those guys a shout out. They do really nice creative work, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're awesome. But it just goes to show the relationships that you can build at some of these events and being at uh, and supporting these organizations too. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay, I want to I want to stick on the backcountry topic for a little bit before we segue into some of the other like deeper topics that we're we're going to get into. And I don't think we need to turn this into like a hyper technical gear podcast, but maybe for the guys who are a little bit newer and they're thinking about bridging out into the back country, I think there's a lot of, it's an, how am I supposed to say this? It, it's a slow process to get to the point where you feel comfortable that you have a full set of gear that's going to serve you well in like a variety of circumstances. Like it's taken me five years and I don't even know how many thousands of dollars, but like what are some initial recommendations? Like how should guys be thinking about that? Like, where do you start your gear journey? And because I think a lot of guys waste money on shit that they don't need to be wasting money on shit up front just to like buy some fancy stuff. But like, how did you think about that when you initially started? Because that's the, 
one of the biggest barriers to entry from like the, tr- the, the, the the road hunting world into the backcountry world is just a whole, you know, variety of different gear that you got to worry about. Yeah, it's definitely a tough one. And I mean, trial and error is always going to be the right. go-to for most guys with that, right? Uh, I always said that boots, brains, and optics are the three most important things that you need when you go into the field. Uh, you know, however you want to frame those three, that's just my opinion. Um, but I think trial and error is going to be, like I said, it's going to be the biggest thing, but I think having a good set of binoculars when you go into the field is imperative. Like you should not be doing any of this backcountry stuff. I feel like, especially some of the Alpine stuff that we do, you know, whether it be mule or whatever, without a good set of binos or a decent set of binos, right? Your $50 set of binoculars that you can buy at the corner store. It's not just going to cut it. It's just not going to cut it there. That's just the reality of it. Uh, And then moving forward from there, it's just, trial and error going back to it you know you're going to want a decent backpack you don't need to blow the budget and go and spend you know 12 dollars on a kafaru right away i mean if you're doing a lot of stuff you probably do um if you're packing heavy you definitely do um but uh yeah go into the stores you know read forums um and figure out what works for you because what works for one guy isn't going to work for everyone right. there's so many different gear brands out there right now whether it be clothing boots backpacks it doesn't matter Everyone's going to have a preference and it's going to be based on what works for you, right? Um, There's boots that fit me that won't fit you. They just don't work for you, right? So, you know, go and try on all this stuff. Don't just uh, listen to one person and decide, hey, I'm going to dive deep into this brand and buy all this gear because you might not like it. So try on as much of that stuff as you can and get a little bit of a taste of everything. Um, I found what works for me and... It's great, but it doesn't always mean it's going to work for everyone. I make my recommendations where I can, but it's kind of the one thing I say to everybody is, you know, keep your mind open and uh, just go with what works. But I mean, any, I guess as a barrier to entry, anyone that's kind of moving away from the road hunting thing, you know, a decent set of pants, uh, any sort of Merino, I like Merino personally, but any sort of like a Merino base layer and then a mid layer and any sort of jacket is going to get you out there and doing those like day trips and, you know, whether you're just hiking up to the top of a mountain to do some glassing for the day and hiking back down, it's where you're going to learn to cut your teeth and most stuff is going to get you there. You know, it might not be the most comfortable stuff and you might suffer, which could be a good thing for sure. Um, but it's going to get it. It's going to get you there. And then as you start to get into it and you realize you like it, definitely start branching out and start spending more money. And um, like I said, the first place I would spend money is always going to be optics personally, and then a good set of boots and a good pack and then just work from there. I like that, man. And, uh, and, you know, one of them, luckily, so I come from a forestry engineering background. So I was a forestry engineer in BC for 15 years. So I'd been tromping around the mountains for my day job for a decade before I started backcountry hunting. So I knew what spending extended periods of time in, you know, the mountain ranges of British Columbia was like long before I started backcountry hunting, which is almost like cheating. And that's why I think the success that I did have earlier on, that's what it was from. And it had nothing to do with my hunting skills or lack thereof and everything to do just with my mountaineering skills. But one of the things too, I'd recommend to people, because this is something I didn't do, is when I went for my first trip, it was like 10 days in Wyoming. Like we're just going to go balls to the wall. And further to your point, like do a weekend trip. You got to pack so much less. You can make a mistake. You can hike out in the middle of the night. You can, like there's, there's lots of like, safety nets there. And I don't think you need, like, I think what happens is people see these like epic 10 day hunts on YouTube and like, that's their first foray. And I think the thing that I would recommend to people, like you were saying is like, do some day hikes 
really get out there. Maybe do a couple single overnight trips. Do a scouting trip in the middle of summer when you've got the weather in your favor and there's ample you know water around if it's kind of early summer before things have started to, to dry up. Like edge your way into it before doing that. Because I think people go out for that big balls out one and they just get their asses kicked. And then, yeah. it, you know, that's, that's hard to recover from. And I think, and then the other counterintuitive thing I would say is once you've decided this is what you're going to do, Buy once, cry once. 100%. I totally agree. I've never regretted buying the best of the best, primarily because you can sell it and get your money back. Like a, like 70, 89, especially in Canada, because once you've like gone through the pain in the ass of ordering whatever it is over the border, um, it's super easy to sell. So stuff like high-end boots, really nice optics, like a Hilleberg tent or a Stone Glacier pack, that shit flies yeah. on hunting BC. Like you won't have it up for two or three days and it'll be gone. And that way you can try it out. And if it's not yours, you get 80, 90% of your money back. And then you can point it towards the next thing because that's try, especially in BC. Like I would argue, except for potentially Alaska, we have probably the toughest mountain hunting conditions in the world, or at least equal to a lot of other parts of the world. And like shitty gear will bite you in the ass eventually hundred percent. And I think to counter that, cause a lot of guys say maybe Alaska and I'm like, yes, but Alaska doesn't have the same desert terrain that we got in certain parts of BC. Right. Yep. You can't go and test this gear in so many different climate climates. Yes. Like you can here in BC, there is nowhere else that you can test gear. Like you can right where we are in my yep. opinion. No, I, I, I would agree. And the variety, like, thank God, you know, Sitka is a friend of the podcast because like the variety of stuff I have in my closet, like it, and that's what, you know, if you go on three or four different mountain hunts, by the time I do like, you know, a winter goat hunt, a spring bear hunt, you know, maybe a, a summer sheep hunt and then a fall elk hunt. Like you, if you, if you have the money, like, don't get me wrong, you can definitely do those hunts with like 80% of like the core stuff saying the same and just swapping out a couple pieces. But once you get to the point where you realize like this is your life's work, you're going to end up with a shitload of different gear in order to be optimized for each of those environments. Cause they're completely different. Yep. No, hundred percent. Right. There's, I mean, the winter goat hunt is a big one that I always say requires a lot of specialty equipment or specialty gear, right? Because yep. what you're running most of the fall isn't going to cut it when you're out there. That's for sure. Um, but one of the things I do like to say, and sometimes, you know, we get comfortable with the gear that we have and, all the, the technical apparel, but it's, it comes down to comfort levels, right? And the more comfortable you are in the mountains, the longer you're going to be able to stay out there. And the more you're yeah. going to want to be out there, which in turn is just going to lead to success. That's my opinion on it. Yep. A hundred percent. And that's my argument too, for the fitness thing. Like I think a lot of people like the fitness cause it, you know, it makes for good Instagram posts and it's fun. Like a lot of hunting shit to practice isn't fun, but like the fitness stuff is, but it comes down to like, the fitter I am, the less likely I am to talk myself out of doing something that's probably going to result in success. Yeah. Like my little mantra is I never want to look at a hill or I, I think about it in elk hunting is I never want to hear a bugle and second guess going after it. Yeah. Like I just want it to be the assumption. If I heard it, I'm going. And I don't want that moment of doubt. And I think that's where the fitness thing creeps in. And you don't have to be some like CrossFit junkie in order to do that. I'm a huge proponent of backpack cardio because I like 
doing what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that's the same thing as, as the gear. Um, anything that you can do that is going to help the quality of your mind frame when you're out there. It's, it's like glassing, man. Two guys can sit on a hill for 10 hours straight and have completely opposite experiences. Like I know there's been days that I just held on and I was like 10% efficient because I was like burnt out or I was tired or I was in a shit mood. And then there's days yeah. where I'm on my A game and I'm literally glassing like 90% of the time. I'm focused. I'm disciplined. I'm like actively, I don't have those moments where like 10 minutes goes by and I'm like, I don't even remember where I put, I don't remember what yeah. part of the mountain I've looked at. I don't remember what I haven't looked at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's a bit of, that's a bit of a rant, but I do think people, you know, the old school diehards are like, oh, you don't need all that fancy gear further to your point. Okay. You don't need it to survive, but I do argue that to be optimal and to have the highest chance of success and to be mentally and psychologically present, nice gear goes a long way. hundred percent. Yeah. There is no replacement for having nice gear. In my opinion, when it comes to your level of comfort and your ability to stay out there longer. And, you know, some people might say you're soft, but I just like being as comfortable as I can because it's when I'm the most efficient. That's for sure. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay. So let's, let's get into this. I know, I know you're a Kuyu guy. Do you have like a favorite, like a, like a surprise piece, or is there something you use this year that just st stood out like head and shoulders against everything else? I mean, I, my, all my apparel is Kuyu. Uh, I think the Kuyu Super Down Pro is one of my go-to pieces uh, just because I can pack that down jacket up so tight. It comes yep. out. I've never been cold in it. So that's one of my favorite go-to uh, pieces. And then the Kuyu attack pants or something I'm wearing all the time. And I don't even wear them just for hunting. They're just so comfortable that I have them on all the time. Um, my, I mean, moving away from Kuyu a little bit, my one standout piece this year, and I've said it a couple of times and um, is my new pack, right? That I would switch to a Kifaru pack this year um and it's been amazing like it yeah there's there's no words for it i think if you are looking to put you know 100 120 pounds in your pack when you're successful it's the pack to be doing it with you know i packed out a stone sheep this year um and ugh, like it was unbelievable the amount of weight i had on my back and i was not comfortable because you're never comfortable with that much weight but um you know you're able to bear it and you're able to push through and you're not bruised or scratched or bleeding from certain points, whether it be your hips or whatever, um, I think is amazing. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to assume you're running the duplex light frame. What bag are you running? Fulcrum. Yeah. Fulcrum. I you're kidding that, me. No. My yeah. man. <laughs> I'm telling people the fulcrum and it's like a sleeper. And I, and I, and I gave Snyder shit for it when he was on the podcast. Cause I'm like, he's always recommending the 44 mag in the hoodlum. And I'm like, Dude, I've been running the fulcrum for going on five years now. And I, I keep telling myself I'm going to buy like a scouting bag and I just can't because to me, the fulcrum is the perfect do it all bag because you can go expedition style. By the time you put the guide lid on, I think you have 9,200 cubic inches. Like it's, it's almost irresponsible because yeah. of how much shit you can fit in that bag. But then when, once I get into camp or whatever, or I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I just collapse that main barrel, yep. cinch the wings down tight. And I hunt out of the two big wing pockets, which fit my 95 millimeter spotter and my outdoorsman's medium compact tripod perfectly. 
and the guide lid. And then, and you basically have this like full expedition pack. The only drawback is I will say there's a shitload of like straps that you're ending up like Velcroing in and Velcroing out to like keep it somewhat manageable. But that's, to me, that's the bag that, that fulcrum bag cannot be touched as far as, yeah, I wouldn't run, I wouldn't run anything else. I love it. Yeah. It's, I, you know, there was a lot of hype before I ever decided to buy it and I went back and forth because I mean, they're not cheap packs, like nope, not at all. Uh, and I went back and forth and, you know, the pack I was using was good and it was working. I packed out, you know, multiple different animals with it. And um, I was actually talking to Omer Herbenick up in uh, at Precision yep. there. And he's sent me a couple pictures of them packing out rounds with the fulcrum and he's talking about it and talking about it. And I'm like, okay, hey, you know what? I just need to order this thing and see what it's going to be like. And yeah. sure enough, I ended up getting it and I used it this season and I'm, I've been super impressed with it. Like I don't, I don't see myself changing from that for a while. That's for sure. See, and this is another thing that, you know, if we're going to go on like the principles for, for gear adoption is that like lightweight is not always lightweight. And I, with backpacks, I'm like, okay, listen, that fulcrum, I think, I think if it's a, I think the fulcrum with the duplex light is a hundred ounces bang on. That is not what you would typically classify as like a, a lightweight backpack. But I argue you put 120 pounds in there. It feels like a hundred pounds. Now you pick up like a four and a half pound bag and put 120 pounds in it. It's going to feel like 150 pounds. Yeah. So it's like, do you really give a shit at that point that your bag and frame weigh an extra pound and a half than the next closest bag and frame? Like, I think there's, there's like the functional lightweight and then there's just the lightweight just to say that it's like X amount of ounces lighter than the next thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think where, the fulcrum of it is the lateral support. That's one of the biggest things for me yeah. is lateral support. Um, and yeah, when you can cinch your bag down, you got that 100, 120 pounds in your pack. Um, I found with sheep sometimes, like with my round personally, when you put it down on the top, it just, they want to move side to side so right. much uh, just because of the weight. Uh, and But with that pack, you just cinch it all down and you can literally spin and try and turn. And that pack, just, that pack is just so tight to you. That lateral support is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I fully agree. It was one of the first big purchases I made before that I was running the long range pack from outdoorsman's that has that, that kind of exo frame on it, which I still think it was great. And the cool thing about that pack is then they came out with the Atlas trainer and you can mount the 45 pound plate to the back. And now I use it for backpack cardio, but that to me is like an okay pack. And I've done a full black tail bone in with that bag. And then when I switched over the car, Fargo, I was just like, this is just night and day. Like yeah. just how it feels in the body, that lumbar support. And just, they really did. They really pioneered some, like some of the ways they run the suspension and that lumbar pad and a couple of other things that I really think they're, you know, kind of head and shoulders. There's maybe one or I think Mystery Ranch deserves a good nod. I think they make really good packs. I've always wanted to try and run a Stone Glacier. I think they probably make really good packs. There's, it's like gear. Like I think Sikun Kuyu, like to be quite honest with you, I think they're on par. I think there's certain elements. Like I think Kuyu probably has the edge in, in down. And there's a couple elements of Sitka that I like better. But I think kind of when you get into that upper echelon, it becomes a lot of personal preference. But for me, when it comes to backpacks, Kafaru is what I'll run. I, I, I don't really see myself stepping outside of that. I'm just really happy with, with that product overall. 
yeah, it's uh, on the market. Like I said, it's not for everybody. Not everyone's going to go out there and spend thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars on a pack. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you're going to be spending a serious amount of time out there and uh, you want something that's going to work, it's definitely one of the packs that you should seriously be considering for sure. Is that fulcrum? Yeah. Uh, but again, it's also what packs is one of those things that I say to everybody: try them all on, try yeah. all of them on, because not everyone's backs are the same. Um, Luckily, Kafaro makes a couple of different frames, which is nice, yeah. uh, different sizes. But, you know, try them all on and see what works for you. And don't try them on, put 20 pounds on them. Try them on, put 80 pounds on them and go for a bit of a walk, right? Because yeah. that's when you're going to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. This is another argument to go to the big shows. Because yeah. you're going to, in like one day at one of those big shows, you're going to be able to try on more boots, more packs, put your hands on more gear. Then, you, then it would take you a year to, to run, especially as a Canadian. And I do want to give a shout out to, to Omer at Precision Optics because we finally have a BC dealer. He's awesome. I've had to return some stuff. It was a breeze. He's crazy knowledgeable about that shit. And he will set you up right in. He's one of those guys that's not going to talk you in to buy in some crazy expensive piece of shit when it's not what you need. And he, and he carries other stuff too. So it's like you, you can get... He's not going to pigeonhole you into, into one piece of gear. Um, but the fact that we have that resource now, and it's in Quinell. So the yeah. funny thing is, 90% of the time, man, you're going to be driving past on your way to a hunt or your way home from, from a hunt. So to be 100%. able to rip in there and put your hands on stuff and get like real world feedback from a dude who's run the gear and really knows his shit, I think is just a, a resource. I'm just really grateful that we have in BC now. Because before that, it was just like, Man, order it, cross your fingers, you don't get dinged too hard for customs. And then if it doesn't fit or if it wasn't what you expected, you're at another hundred bucks because you got to ship. Like it's just, it was a nightmare. So that's really cool that he did that. No, a hundred percent. And, you know, being able to talk to a guy like that, there's no replacement for someone that has experience and time in the field, right? Yeah. Like, you know, someone can make a recommendation if they work at Cabela's, right? But they probably not put the time in. When you talk to Omer, he's put the boot, his boots to the ground, he's put the miles on. And he's done it right. So he's yeah. going to tell you what works and what doesn't work. And he's going to be honest about, you know, it works for him and whether you actually need something or you don't need something based on what you're doing. So it's always yeah. nice to have that for sure. And 100%. it's in the BC. He's yeah. in BC. So he knows what we're dealing with. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't think a lot of people, you know, yeah, most, most other people, you just, there's no substitute for experience. Yeah. Okay. I want to be cognizant of time. And the fact is, well, we're probably going to have to do another, another gear one. Cause I think we could nerd out on this shit all night, but I want to take a bit of a left turn. Because there's been a couple major developments um, and like articles and just things that are like really super interesting that have kind of happened lately. And I want to touch on them. And there's a few, but I want to start with Matt Ranella's article first. So, he, well, he did an article and he did a podcast. And the thing is, if you've been an avid watcher of Meat Eater or listener to the Meat Eater podcast, like these are not new opinions of Matt's. Like these are long held opinions that. I mean, what's the what's the best way to kind of synthesize or, or or summarize? Basically, he's fairly clearly anti-social media writ large. Doesn't really think there's a place for it in hunting. Thinks it's pretty responsible for the over hunting of public lands and like a variety of a variety of other kind of of consequences. So I think it's, it was on free range American and then it got taken down for some reason. And then it went back up. I don't really know why it got taken down or 
why it went back up, but I think it's pretty easy to Google it, to Google it now. What's, you've had a chance to read it, and I know you've had some energetic discussions about it. What's your take on his stance? It's not the first time I've heard a similar stance, and you know he has his opinion based on what you know he's kind of come up with and what he sees. Um, I just personally, whenever I've had these conversations with people in terms of the social media impact on hunting, I feel like people don't take a look at all of the impacts, and included in that is the positive impact of social media on hunting. Um, there's no doubt that we see a lot of stuff on social media that, in my opinion, is pure bullshit. Like it's just a fact and it is what it is in the hunting community. And there's a lot of shit we see on social media in the hunting community that shouldn't fucking be there um, at all. And it's frustrating when we see a lot of it, but there's a lot of good that comes of it. I think, you know, one of the things that he talks about in the podcast is just removing it completely from social media. And I think that could be one of the worst things that we could do as a hunting community is, you know, completely shy away from the public. Uh, I think when you, put something out there and put it out there with a good light and normalize it, you're going to have a lot more positive feedback than you are going to have negative feedback. I mean, what I said to someone today is just imagine hunting disappears off social media for five years, right? Let's just say that happens. And there's no pictures of anything hunting related on social media. And five years down the road, this picture somehow emerges of a couple guys bear camp. And in that bear camp is three dead bears. What are people's sensitivity to a picture like that emerging after five years of not seeing a single harvested animal or a single hunting picture versus right. what it's at right now. People are going to be up in arms and it's going to be way worse, I think, than what we're seeing right now. Just because they're not used to it. It's not the norm. It's, you know, it goes against what they're used to seeing, what they believe in, what they think is reality, um, in my opinion. So that's one of the things. The other thing, and this is my personal experience and what I said is up until I was probably 18 or 19, I didn't tell anybody that I hunted, Right. Right. To be completely honest, in high school, I didn't want people knowing because I didn't know what people were going to think, right? Or what they might say. Just because there's sometimes there's a little bit of a stigma and I didn't know how to deal with it. When I probably turned 19 or 20, really got into the backcountry type scene and the mountain hunting um, is when I kind of started to share it and post more pictures. And that wasn't just harvest pictures. It's telling the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. It's taking pictures of, you know, the landscapes or, you know, making our meals or doing what we do in the mountains all the time. And in the last six years, since I started doing that, I have had, I said 10 times today, but it's probably more than that, probably 20 or 30 times more positive feedback from people that don't and have no interest in hunting than I have negative. Right. I think that right there says a lot, right? When people I went to school with who I was worried about maybe having an opinion of me because I hunted are now reaching out to me to talk about how cool some of these pictures are, how cool that experience seems like it might, might be, or at times even talking about maybe getting involved or learning how to do it or looking into it a bit more, I think that that positive aspect of it needs to be talked about, not just the negative where he's talking about, you know, I get it, the influencer stuff and guys taking two or three elk a year and, you know, that stuff's not great. It, last year uh, we saw, it was called the deer selfie. And I hate talking about this, but people were on social media taking a selfie with a deer they harvested, literally like laying on the ground next to it. Right. It became a thing. Right. And I'm like, guys, what are we doing? Like, smarten up that stuff does not belong on social media no one should right. even be taking that picture it's stupid in my opinion but um that's the kind of stuff we need to get away from and start showing i always say it start showing and telling the whole story showing right. what we actually do right we don't like you said we were talking about earlier we don't drive out there and 15 minutes later shoot something put it in the back of the truck and drive home right i mean it, somebody's a wish good. man 
That's what everybody thinks. They're like, oh, did yeah. you get something? I'm like, no, I almost died three times, but yeah. no, I didn't come home with any meat. I yeah. W- yeah, yeah. Right? I, I just think that, uh, yeah, telling the whole story and being real about what we do is so important, right? The second we try and hide from it or be ashamed of it is when, um, you know, anti-hunters, as you might want to call it, will attack us. And I think one of the biggest things to remember, and what I always say is, listen, there's the 10% of us that are hunters. There's the 10% or whatever it is that are anti-hunters. And there's the 80% that's in between. Yes. We're not catering to that 10% anti-hunters because nothing we do are the, they're going to be happy about. We need to just take them right out of our thoughts, in my opinion. Yep. Think about that 80%, right? Yep. Think about that 80% and what we're showing them, you know, yep. and what they might think. And I think it's important that they realize that people are out there hunting and that this is normal, right? What we do is normal. It's been done for decades and generations. I mean, as long as time, right? Yeah. People have been hunting. So keeping it normal and keeping it in the public's eyes or image or whatever you want to do it, I think is important and something we shouldn't be shying away from. Yeah. I like it, man. I think that's, you know, it's just some unique perspectives that I, that I hadn't thought. And the, uh, the other thing that I think needs to be said is like, there's an element of personal responsibility, both in how you, kind of curate your own social media feed and then how you react to the material that's there. Like just because people put dumb shit on social media does not then take away the responsibility for other idiots who then go do similar dumb shit. Like those idiots were probably going to do some version of dumb shit anyways, because that's just the type of individuals that they are. And it's like, I've shared this before on the podcast. Like I had to scrape my social media feed about a year and a half ago because And like, they were some pretty big time, you know, well-respected guys that did not, and okay, I'll come right out and say it. I don't like the whole gimme hunts for celebrities. Like it, it fund, I I have a problem with it because there's this message that like hunting is this thing that once you go decide to do it, like you're just going to be successful. And it's because, and like, I hate to bag on Joe Rogan, but like the guy hunts the Tahone ranch, like. I don't think he's ever had to go find a spot in his life. And so people just assume I'm just going to go out and get it. And I remember John Dudley got Jocko his first elk in six months. And so he, you have like a, like probably one of the best archers in the world teaching this guy how to shoot a bow and then take him to a private ranch on Utah. And I don't like that version of hunting on social media. I'm not, if that's the way you want to hunt, I'm not going to judge you. It's legal. You paid for your tag have at her. But I had to clear all those guys from my social media feed because I don't want to see that shit. Like that's, that's not what I'm about. Like it took me five years and seven hunts to kill my first elk. And I did it solo with a bow at 10,000 feet. And it's like, you know, I've got a couple of degrees. I have a six-year-old child. I'm married. And like between me and you, like that elk, might be the thing in my life I'm most proud of. And <laughs> and if somebody had given me that elk before I had a chance to experience all those failures, they would have robbed me of that uh, potential to get my, to know myself, to like feel like, man, it was, it was rough. Like I used to come home from elk hunts and my wife would be mad because I was upset. And it was like, it's a whole a chapter of my life, man, to yep. get this one elk. And it's this like monolithic, it's my white whale. And I don't know. And so for me, 
And like, that's, I, I made a whole movie about it. And I've like, people have like hundreds of people have gotten in touch with me because of that. And like, it gave them, it inspired them to go out and fail on their own. And when they saw that, they're like, I'm just going to keep trying it my way until I'm able to get it done. And to me, that's the power of, of social media. Like if you take personal responsibility for the types of things you want in the feed and the types of, you know, um, inspiration that you want to be a part of and the types of messages that you want to put out to somebody else. I think in the balance of it all, there's, there's more opportunity for good than there is for bad, but also agree wholeheartedly with you. That's like Bomar was spearing that bear. Like you a fucking moron. Okay. Technically it was a legal thing to do. Does that mean you should put it on YouTube. No, I like. I don't see what like positive impact to the hunting community that can have personally. Like that's just something that, in my opinion, is is irresponsible. So I, you know, there's still lots of instances of people putting things on on social media that shouldn't. And I'll say something even a little bit devil's advocate to that. So there was this big, and I liked your thing about the sensitivity. So. The whole meat eater crew had this whole like grip and grin 2.0 thing, like Ben, what's his, what's his nuts? Cause they didn't like the like trophy shots and then said they would just hold up like a backstrap. And like, that was the trophy yeah. shot. And my thing was now you're like, I think there's, there is an element of giving up too much of our culture in order to appease, like you're saying that 10%. I still... Like I've got like, so moose hunting was our thing as a kid. I lived in Ontario. It was Thanksgiving week. I used to get taken out of school for it. And I have like old film photographs of like hunt camp and like a, a quartered moose hung up and like a trophy shot. And these are like some of the most powerful memories I have in my life. And like, I'm not willing to give up photographs like that. Like, I do think it's important that we protect part of our culture, but I do think irresponsible things like the deer selfies and, and the spearing of the bear and like dumb stuff. But I, I do think there's a line there. We still have to say like, this is our culture. This is what we believe. And we want to protect it without being completely obnoxious to the point where we're creating enemies where we don't need to with that 80% in the yeah. middle. hundred percent. And I've had this argument kind of on that too, is one of the things that scared me the most, and we, we've seen it a lot over the last 18 months, is just trying to rely on the story of hunting for meat. Right. I think that is a very, very dangerous, a very slippery slope that us as hunters could get caught on. Yeah. We consistently claim that the only reason we hunt is for meat. Right. Because between all of us, anyone listening to this, it's not the only reason we hunt. We no, love being out there. We love the challenge. We love the adventure. We love... Yeah. Everything. About and we it. love the success. Like, I'm going to be honest, man. It 100%. is exciting. I feel fulfilled. I, it is definitely, there are elements of pleasure of taking that life. I'm not going to lie about it. Like it's a complicated experience. I'm not saying I get off killing shit, but I would be lying if there was not like positive emotions associated with a successful kill. That's a fact. Exactly. Yeah. No, 100%. And we need to be real about that and transparent about that as hunters, in my opinion. And yeah, like I said, um, the, the sole reason we hunt is not just for the meat because I mean, we just talked about how expensive gear is, how expensive yep. this is, how expensive that is. Right. 
The two don't go hand in hand when you start counting no, dollars. No, you go get a whole grass-fed cow from 100 Mile House. You have the best meat on the <laughs> planet for what I spent on a sleeping bag. Yeah, exactly. My buddy Justin's going to love that comment just because <laughs> he's like, you know what? If you hunt for meat, support BC ranchers, right? Yeah. Because that's, if we're looking at dollar for dollar, you know, we're, we're not really just hunting for the meat aspect. It's sure, we love it. I love game meat, but it's not the only reason we did it. So one of my little soapboxes is the term trophy hunting. And I, I want to start a campaign to like get this word back yep. because I think it's been bastardized by people who don't understand. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is when somebody goes, oh, that's okay. You, you eat what you kill. You're not a trophy hunter, right? And if I've got the time and I think they're anything north of a complete moron, I stop. And I'm like, we need to have a conversation about that word. Yeah. Because- to me, it is a trophy. Like when I, like that, those, that is a trophy to me. That is a, a, a physical piece of memorabilia that commemorates a, an extreme challenge and, and a victory that I'm incredibly proud of. And I don't see why, like how that, that like that term has been bastardized by people who, I don't even think real, like people always talk about these like crazy trophy hunters and I, I don't even know any of these guys that no. only go around and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to kill weird. I, I think it's more of a narrative than a reality. Yeah. The people who I know who have like crazy trophy rooms are guys who are deep, probably give more to conservation in one life than like an entire chapter of PETA ever will. Yeah. Like they're guys who are deeply passionate about hunting and have dedicated their entire lives they're probably super successful business guys and they definitely have the money to go to places and take the kind of hunts that enable them to put together, you know, pretty impressive rooms. But even those guys care more deeply about those experiences than you would, than they're being given credit for. And I just, it's really frustrating to me that I have to pretend that it's not an accomplishment that's worthy of being commemorated by a physical object. Like, I, I don't even understand how that could be perceived as a negative thing when you look at it like that. 100%. When you look at the term trophy hunting and where that originated from, it's the Boone and Crockett Club. Right. Back in the 40s or 50s, when I don't remember the exact year it originated. Uh, but trophy hunting was framed to push away from commercial hunting and the negative impact that commercial hunting was having on wildlife. Trophy hunting is the very reason we have seen conservation right. success in elk, whitetail, mule deer, ducks, everything in North America. It, yeah. It's the reason for it. It yeah. was the beginning of the framework for the North American model of the uh, North American model of wildlife management. Wildlife conservation? No, it's the hilarious guys in Shane Mahoney book. Okay. I just, I totally butchered that. But um, yeah, I mean, trophy hunting, in my opinion, is conservation is what it is, right? Right. The proper management, uh, quality herd dynamics, and overall herd health is what leads to a trophy, right? Yeah. And that is set by, well, going back to Boone and Crockett, it's measured in inches because yeah. it shows that this species under the best possible uh, scenario, whether that's, you know, habitat, uh, genetics, uh, everything, this is what it would measure at its mature, you know, when it's a mature animal, right? Whether that's 190 inch mule deer, 180 inch ram, whatever it is, that's what it's based on. And it goes back to, you know, what's best for the wildlife and showing that wildlife populations are succeeding and are healthy. 
Yep. Yeah, man. A hundred percent. It's definitely. Okay. So you know what? Let's, let, let's take another little turn here because I think this is an interesting opportunity to segue into, you know, the current state of sheep hunting in British Columbia. And I don't want to be one of those Debbie Downers that's going to like jump on the train and say, oh, this year was a fiasco and it's an embarrassment and all that kind of stuff. I think there were some poor decisions made and I think there were some mistakes. But I also think that this is another example of when we're trying to draw a line in the sand and say that the animals on this side of the line, if we focus our attention on these animals, it's going to create better herd dynamics. It's going to create better genetics. It's going to create, you know, more healthy populations. There's going to be more opportunity for everybody. Um, there's going to be less likelihood of, especially with things like this blue tongue shit coming around and like other weird, the fires hurting herd health, like, and that's the thing those non-hunters can jump on and actually, you know, and and have a, a, a stance and some ground is that because then you really are in danger of of injuring the herd. But what is your, you know, what's your take on on the trajectory of of sheep hunting in BC and the kind of recent trend that they're. I think it's safe to say without being hyperbolic, there has certainly been more immature animals taken per hunter over the last few years than definitely five, 10, 15 years in the kind of preceding decades before that. I think there's a lot to it. Um, it's, it's a tough one and I've had these conversations a lot. Uh, education, first and foremost, is the most important thing. And I think people lately have been just too quick to skip that education and the time mm. in the field, the experience, um, and just want to go and pull the trigger first right. and foremost. There's this, this is where going back to Matt Ranella, there is, he does have some points that are right. Social media, I think has played a part in people having this pressure to be yeah. successful for the gram. Right. So, that, you know, so like I said, social media isn't all positive. There's some negative to it. And I think that's one of the negatives that we do see. With that being said, I have noticed a lot of, you know, kind of the up and coming generation asking the questions as to why this is happening, which is something that's super positive for me to see. Um, yep. Yep. Guys my age wondering why this is happening and what they can do to make it better. Um, I think, but it all goes back to education. Education and patience and not having you know, to kill something every time you go out there uh, or the first time you go out there. I mean, the there's an age old saying about sheep hunting that uh, goes something along the lines of the ram you take. The first ram you take is born the year you start sheep hunting, right. something along those lines. Right. So if you look at, say, a stone sheep, generally eight years old is when they become legal. So eight years to kill a ram. And that's not always the case. Some guys I've heard of are longer and some guys are less time. Right. But ultimately, we as a group just need to be more accountable and hold people more accountable on their actions in the field. And as hunters, we need to put in our time and just, you know, really know what we're doing when we go out there. Um, I personally would like, when we're talking about sheep specifically, I'd like to see a sheep hunt, a mandatory sheep hunting course in our province, you know, mm. an aging course, right? Yep. Yep. Um, I've my opinion or my my stance on it's kind of been questioned by some people, but I think all sheep hunting should be on age. Um, okay. You know, take the, maybe take the full curl requirement out and make it all eight plus. I mean, I hunt an area for bighorns where the 
age class, like it's hard to compare the bighorns to the stone sheep just because of habitat and certain things. Um, and stone sheep has been one of the biggest focuses this year with the illegal harvest and being taken away. I don't think we've seen as much of that in bighorns, but, um, you know, I hunt an area where the yeah, age classes come down in harvest because of, from what I've seen, these rams reach their maturity and their, you know, their full curl at a young age and then tend to broom off. So most of the rams that are legal are in that five to seven year old category. Huh. And I see eight to 10 year old rams year in year out that are broomed and will never be legal, right? Okay. There's no age requirement. So it, it when you see that, it really does suck. And I right, think it might, right. might, if you look, if you think about it from a biologist perspective or a wildlife manager's perspective, and you get three or four rams that come in a year that are between five and seven, it might make you think there isn't mature sheep in there when the reality is there is mature sheep in there. We just can't harvest them. And then, you know, they give out draws or whatever. And I'm not a huge fan of our draw system when it comes to sheep here, because I feel like it's too easy for someone that has no experience or education to go right. out and take the first ram that they see, right? Especially when we have any ram tags in multiple areas in our province. Yeah. So, but I mean, it all goes back to teaching people. I think it's our responsibility too, as a sheep hunting community. Um, and this goes back to mentorship too, to teach and uh, educate, right? Um, I've had this conversation with some of the guides too. You know, I think as a guide, a part of the responsibility is going to be teaching and um, educating residents on how to properly age sheep, right? Because, yeah, are you maybe teaching someone how to kill a ram that they might not know how to age? Possibly. But more than that is you're teaching someone not to kill an illegal ram out of your area, in my opinion, yeah. or kill a six or seven-year-old stone sheep out of your area, right? Um, and I think that message comes pretty strong from, or comes out pretty strong from people who are professionals in the industry. You know, as a new sheep hunter, if you hear someone who does this for a living year in and year out, and people trust with seven or eighty thousand dollars to take you out and put you on a legal ram and have the ability to age that ram and tell you it's eight, nine, or ten years old, as a resident, when you hear that person educating, teaching you kind of the tips and tricks, I think that's a pretty powerful message. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, so I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I haven't taken a ram yet and there's, just, I, there's, there's still lots of big goals for me. So I can't get on a soapbox and talk about all the mature animals I've passed up waiting for the big tanker. And, and so I, I don't pretend I'm somebody I'm not, but what I actively do is try to glorify the adventure of the hunt because that's the kind of message that I'm trying to put out with the whole mindful hunter thing is that like, that's what it like, because if, if you're going into it and it's funny, cause this is actually counter to some of the stuff I've said in the, in the past and I am okay. I do believe in, in accepting failure and recognizing failure, but I also believe that by glorifying the adventure of the hunt, there's still challenge and there's still like, you can still have a win because if you planned a hunt that is out of your previous comfort zone or into a new piece of territory where you're, you've never been before or in a season that you've never been at altitude for before and you're able to like make it through your hunt, not come out early, not have anything bad happen and get out in one piece – to me, that's, that's a success. Like you, you, you're, you're a better hunter than you were before. And I think by sharing the message that like, 
and I don't listen, I'm a backcountry guy, but listen, maybe there's, there's other challenges in hunting too. I don't want to be biased towards just my version of hunting, but I think there's other ways to challenge yourself and still have a success in the hunt. What will not kind of putting that pressure on yourself that like the only way I'm going to come home feeling okay about this is with something in my pack, because I think that is setting up unrealistic expectations. And it's also, you know, like people follow you, a couple people follow me. Like I do see as a, a responsibility. That's why I post proud. Like I'm 50, 50 this year with like successful hunt films and shitty failure hunt films. And like, trust me when I get home and I haven't like, it's, it's not like, there's a part of me that's like, I kind of don't want to edit this. Like I'd really rather not put up this film of me failing, but I think that helps correct the perception of hunting. When you see this guy who kind of knows what he's doing and is going out with, you know, maybe 50, 50 odds at best. Like, I think that right sizes people's expectations, which is another thing I think we need to work on, on, on social media a little bit. hundred percent. I mean, you know, going back to the success and not success, success, especially in sheep hunting, I think it's equally as impressive if you got a couple phone scope pictures of a ram that you were like, hey, it was seven or eight, yeah. but I opted not to take it. And you post those pictures, man, I have a ton of respect for you. Ton yeah. of respect. You made a call. You made the right call. You weren't confident with the age of that ram and you left it on the mountain for another year. Good on you. Yeah. No one is going to shame you. No one's going to say anything negative about you. I got a friend who's probably passed on four to six legal rams at this point in his sheep hunting career. Hasn't taken one for himself. You know, he was on a good ram this year and he's like, you know, it could be eight. He had that eighth ring and, or he, you know, it looks like he has that eighth ring. And I personally think it's an eight-year-old ram, but he didn't take it because he just wasn't hundred percent sure. And he didn't know if that was the ram he wanted to take. Hats off to him. Yeah. Tons of respect, right? Good on you. Right. So it's not always just about being successful and, you know, don't take that risk. Don't take that risk and be that guy that uh, took a chance and it backfired on and, you know, if, if guys continue to do that and we continue to have rams taken away and illegal harvest, we're going to lose it all. It, it's just as yeah. simple as that. I agree. And I do, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but, and maybe I'm just biased because of the people that I have conversations and the people that I talk to, but I do feel like the pendulum is swinging back in the right direction with the, with the, with the tone that I see on social media with guys like the journal and their podcast beyond the kill. And like the other kind of people who, you know, have a presence and are well-respected in the local BC community. Like I see positive things and maybe I'm a bit in a bit of an, an echo chamber, but I don't see my, I'm not hanging out with people that are running out there to kill seven-year-olds. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one I was talking about this before the podcast, the one guy I know that had a sheep taken this year, it was a legitimate, honest mistake. And he, he really did his homework and he made the wrong call. There, there, there are going to be honest mistakes and that's going to happen. And I think owning up to those and sharing those so other people can benefit from them is also a, a positive thing. I think it's hard to do, um, because you're going to take some heat, but I think that stuff is important too, because then people, the other drawback is you don't want people starting to hide shit either. No, no, hundred percent. We need to be real. We need to be honest. And you're right. Mistakes do happen and rounds are taken away every year. It's when we have these big optics in it that yeah. clearly there's something else going on. Uh, you and I talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but I think uh, going back to what we were saying earlier too, not being able to do these in-person events where 
you know, there's banquets where we do sheep aging courses and, you know, guys get to go and hold a ram for the first time and look at what a real ring count or what a real ring actually looks like, I think has done a little bit of negative for the community. So I'm really hoping that we can move away from COVID and start doing these in-person events and start doing these this education in person. With that being said, there's a lot of educational material put out there um, and people listen to one snippet of what someone might say, might say or what one person says makes a ram legal and just go off of it. It's important to remember that in the field, it's your responsibility and your call. Just because someone said that if a sheep has this characteristic, it's going to make it legal, you still need to make sure that that ram is eight years old. Don't rely on one little thing, right? Um, I know there was a few rams taken in this year where guys made this claim of, well, it has this, so it must be legal. It's like, no, the ram is still seven. That doesn't work 100% of the time, right? So it's our responsibility as hunters to be confirming what we're doing. Well, and I, that, that's a very good point and something I never realized because it's a little bit different in different provinces and different states. But in British Columbia, the shooter is the one ultimately responsible for the age of the ram. So even when a guide says, pull that trigger, he's not the one legally responsible for that ram. You as the shooter are. So even if you got the big bucks and you're going on a big fancy hunt, I would do your homework because you're going to be the one responsible if the wrong ram gets shot. Hmm. That's, I actually, I haven't done a ton of research on the guided side of things, but I didn't realize that that's actually pretty interesting, especially considering you'll get guys from down in the States or back East or, you know, from overseas that might've never seen a sheep before. I um, think luckily we have some really good guides in, in British do. Columbia, for but sure. I mean, I thought it was the opposite. I thought for sure. You know what I mean? It was the guide's responsibility, but um, I forget who I was talking with this year. And then I went and looked into it afterwards and like, yeah, it's it's your responsibility as the one who's pulling the trigger, but it's not the same everywhere, which is why I started initially um, looking into it. Listen, I want to be cognizant of time and at, we've got, I want to thank everyone who sent in the ridiculous uh, oh, questions. You have, <laughs> like I said, as soon as you put that up, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was like, man. yeah, here we go. Um, But I, there were a couple guys who like uh, legitimately um, sent in some real questions. So I, I want to sift through these and actually respect them because um, I, I, I think there were good questions. Okay. Um, and you don't have to answer this super extensively, but things to look for when e-scouting for sheep, elevation ranges, geographic features, et cetera. So that's going to be pretty dependent on where you're hunting sheep. I mean, I've hunted right. sheep in a lot of different parts of our province. Um, and even if you look at stone sheep, different parts of the province are going to have stone sheep that tend to live in timber or tend to live up on, you know, different, uh, different type of stuff. Bighorns, especially, we have a lot of places in BC where people seem to think that, or they maybe watched a bunch of YouTube videos that sheep live in big open vistas. We have tons of rams that live in timber. So it's really, really going to be super dependent of where you're hunting um, so it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to answer. No, I think that that's, question, I right? think that's, a, I think that's a great question because I think, I think it's like pick your area, then go do some research on behavior yeah. for whatever particular species it is. And that is, and you're going to look for bedding patterns, feeding patterns, mating patterns. And then that is going to highlight what types of terrain you're going to find them in for those different behaviors. I think that's a great call out because there isn't, and I think sheep, 
particularly people like, yeah, just the rocky shale, right? You wait, go to the green stops, and then they're going to live above that, I think is definitely, you know, a fairly commonly held belief by people who aren't like diehard sheep guys. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, a lot of guys, one big thing to look for is water. All sheep are going to need water. Sometimes you're going to find spots that you find springs in the mountain that you did not. I mean, I've walked into springs where I'm like, wow, I would have never imagined there to be water here. But uh, I mean, yeah, sheep are always going to need water and they're always going to need feed. So, I mean, those are two obvious things, but it's good to look for. Yeah. Okay. I I think I know what your answer is going to be on this, but I'm going to ask anyways. First time sheep hunt must have piece of gear that will improve the experience the most. Binoculars. Good binoculars. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I don't think you can sheep hunt without a good set of binoculars in my opinion or a decent set because I've tried to use a shitty pair of binoculars and after half an hour, you got a headache. So if you're in glass and you ain't seeing them. Yep. I would agree. And I would say that like, and I, the sheep might be one exception to this, but by really for general hunting purposes, buy really good binoculars before you buy a shitty spotting scope. Cause 100%. you'd be surprised like what a good pair of 12s, it's like pretty damn close to like 27X on a shitty spot. Like, yeah. And if you're going to be partner hunting, maybe look at like one guy buys one and one guy buys the other or something like that. Like there's ways to to get around it. But definitely, I think that uh, the binos supersede. I made that mistake, man. I bought, and I was just, I'll call them out. I bought the Razor 65 millimeter and it was like, it was just a flaming piece of shit, man. Like I couldn't even zoom in, Pat, whatever. It's like 22 to 65 or whatever it was. And the only time you could look through it was at like full magnification. And at the same time, I had the Razer HD binoculars and I'm like going back and forth. And I'm like, this is kind of ridiculous. Like I'm basically getting as clear of an image out of my, I think they were 12 by 50s as I am, which kind of makes sense because you probably actually have more, well, you do have more objective in 250 millimeters than 165. Um, But yeah, that was definitely a learning for me. Like get the, get the quality binos before you um, bother. Yeah. Even like you, I hear it all the time and guys are like, they, they look at vortex or whatever, but I mean, if you look at spotting scope, you compare a vortex razor, the top end thing, Versus Swarovski ATS. I think brand new, there's a $700 price difference. If you look for a used Swarovski in good condition, you're going to get it for like the same price as that Vortex and you're getting way more product for your money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And these are things that as long as there's no physical damage, they don't really, you know... Uh, there's not a lot of mechanical parts that are going to break down over time. It's not like buying a used truck. Like there's people with 20 year old binoculars that when taken care of properly work exactly the same way they did. And a lot of these guys, you can send them back and they'll like rebuff the glass for a minimal fee. And there's lots of ways to bring life back. So I would definitely recommend used alpha glass over brand new beta glass any day. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, there is, I mean, in my opinion, nothing compares to European glass, so. No, no, I say it all, I use Zeiss, Leica, and, and Swaro. And I think when you get to those three, now you're just talking personal preference. Like 100%. at that point, it's just opinion. What do you like? What color profiles feel good in your eyes? What ergonomics fit your hands properly in a variety of, of, of other, you know, personal preference characteristics? Yeah, 100%. 
all right, man, it's getting late. We could, I'm sure we could go on and we'll definitely have to get you back on. And any, anything you want to say or, or, or pass on, I'll make sure to link your, your Instagram and any other links that you would think are important in the, in the show notes, but floor is yours. If you want to, if you want to say anything before we close out. No, I mean, honestly, just, you know, do your part out there, support the organizations that are supporting the stuff we love to do. Wild Cheap Society, Wild Cheap Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Get behind these guys because they're doing the important stuff on the mountains. And uh, other than that, just enjoy your time out there. Do it for the right reasons. Awesome. All right, everybody. Um, as always, if you could take a moment to engage with the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Um, and as always, thanks for tuning in.